The opinions and statements expressed in the program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here, and welcome to episode 55 of the Pennsylvania Project. As you may know, here at the Pennsylvania Project, our vision is a better Pennsylvania. To achieve that vision, our mission is to boldly showcase the political, cultural, and environmental challenges facing contemporary Pennsylvania and to relentlessly pursue correct solutions. But more important than solving the problem correctly is to solve the correct problem, even if you have to stand against the entire planet. We have another New Normal episode planned for today, and like all episodes of The Pennsylvania Project, it's divided into three parts. You, them, and me. Part one is all about you, your questions, your opinions, your solutions, your whatevers. And rather than a call-in format, we utilize an email-in format. So if you have something to say, you can always drop us a line at PennsylvaniaProject.com. Today for the you part, we have our latest regular feature, Unscripted Cohorts, plus a challenge of my position on how to handle the latest pandemic. We also have an update on how to buy whiskey in Pennsylvania. Surprise, surprise. And if we have time, a philosophical look at dog napping. After the you part comes part two, the them part where each episode we host a guest to help us showcase the political, cultural, and or environmental issues facing Pennsylvania. Our guest today is a heavy mix of the political and the cultural. She's Kathy Smith, past school board president in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania. After that comes the me portion of the Pennsylvania Project, where it'll be my turn, your caster, Ken Krawchuk. I'll be focusing on some particular issue that really sticks in my craw. Today, in keeping with our educational theme with our guest... I will be ranting about my Catholic education. (laughs) Should be a good one. And throughout the show, as is our long-established custom, we typically feature a Pennsylvania Toastmaster to serve as narrator to read our live commercials. But living in such interesting times, we've been asked to minimize our in-studio presence. That means again today, we have no narrator. But the good news is, is that we typically have a second Toastmaster with us, according to another one of our ancient customs to help read and respond to whatever comes into our mailbag and join in discussions with our guest. It's a role we call cohort. Our cohort is sitting right across from me right now, ready to do double duty of both cohort and narrator on this, her third appearance on the Pennsylvania Project. Let me welcome to the Pennsylvania Project, Donna Herb. Hey, Ken. Does this mean I'm going to get paid twice as much? (laughs) (laughs) Twice nothing is nothing. Hey, I'm easy on that. You're getting paid as much as I am, I guess. (laughs) And you came all the way over from the police state of New Jersey to be here. You're not a Pennsylvania Toastmaster. You're a Jersey Toastmaster. I am a Jersey Toastmaster. What's it like on the other side of the river? Probably about the same here, except our liquor stores aren't closed. Oh, <laughs> don't rub it in. Uh-huh. I, I guess I can't tell you that the last time I needed some whiskey, I went over to Jersey. At least it's, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself because we have a question about how we can get around Pennsylvania's prohibition without going over to New Jersey or Ohio or anything like that. <laughs> Did you see the latest interview? Who was it? Tucker Carlson or Carlson Tucker? I don't even know the guy's name from Fox. He interviewed your governor, Murphy. And I wrote this down. He says, he asked, uh, "What he said, were you thinking about the Bill of Rights when you passed all these orders? And your governor says, no, I wasn't thinking about the Bill of Rights. And it's like, oh, man. What a guy. What a guy. (laughs) Terrible stuff. 
I'm glad I'm on this side of the river, even though the state stores are closed. I'm showing my age calling them state stores. Isn't that what they call them? Not anymore. No? Only people our age call them. I can't say our age. You're a young lady. And, and Well, no, I, I don't live in Pennsylvania, so <laughs> I, I've only heard them referred to. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just call them liquor stores now that are owned by the state? I don't know. What are they call them wine and spirit shops, so they keep changing the name. Oh. Doesn't matter. They're still closed. Lipstick on a pig. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on with things. We start with our new ancient custom, because I've been asking each cohort to bring along some unscripted question for an impromptu response from me. This is practicing my table topics from Toastmasters and also a reflection of my political world experience. But it doesn't have to be a political question. What you got? Well, actually, I'm going to go easy on you. So You're so good to me. Well, we're in hard times, Ken. <laughs> I don't want to make it any harder for you. So here's the easy question, or the feel-good question. The events of the past few months have changed the world, obviously. The downside of this pandemic is clearly obvious. Lives lost, an unemployment rate higher than the Great Depression I heard today was, I don't know, something like... 20%. Yeah, which is getting up there toward the Great Depression there, which was about 25%, I think. Anyway, it impacts industries, including restaurants, hotels, entertainment, and plenty of others, and it's going to take years for some of those to recover. So given all the damage that this virus has done, are there any good elements that you have witnessed or heard about that have come about as a result of our current state of living? Oh, absolutely. There's, there's all sorts of good things. And the most obvious one you experienced on your drive down here, there's no traffic. True. Because one thing, uh, the wife and I, we're not quarantining. We're still out and about living our lives. I'm here in the studio today. We're still traveling around. In fact, tomorrow, we, well, let me back up. One thing we've been doing is patronizing all of our favorite restaurants just to make sure that they make it through okay as well. So we go to our favorite pizza place, we go to our favorite Indian food place and everything like that. We hit all the ones locally. But now we're stretching out. Our daughter lives in Syracuse, New York, four hours north of here, all right? One of our favorite pizza places, my second favorite pizza place in the entire state, I'm gonna give him a shout out, Dino and Francesco's Pizza in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, at the top of the turnpike. They're up there, so on Friday, I'm leaving my house in the middle of the afternoon. My daughter's leaving her house in the middle of the afternoon, and we are going to meet for pizza at Dino and Francesco's in Clark Summit. So we're using this as an excuse because the roads are empty, nobody's going to be there, and we're supporting our favorite restaurant all at the same time. So it's just a win-win-win situation all around. And there's a beautiful little middle-of-nowhere lake up there. It's just off to the east of of the turnpike exit lake uh, it only has to be met maybe 10 acres but nobody's usually there but we're going to go up there we're going to have a picnic out in the middle of nowhere spend an hour or so together get in our cars and drive two hours back home again so i think that's wonderful i could talk about the honeydew list and things like that my wife says what are you doing today and i got this big long list of things here one of these <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good question and it's very good i would highly encourage everybody to go out and do the same thing Go out and patronize your local restaurants, and do not forget to over-tip your waitress. Don't any place you can tip these people because they are risking their lives to be out there to make my pizza and bring yeah. me and my daughter together. 
And my other daughter, she lives locally too. Uh, she's going up, going up there too. So our grandkids are going to be up there. Two of our three daughters are going to be there. Husbands, wives, kids. It's going to be wonderful. That sounds good. Yeah, I, I, I have to absolutely concur with you about the restaurants. I mean, they're only takeout, but you know what? We have been supporting our local restaurants in, in Jersey also. Good for you. I should do one in Jersey. Carlucci's in West Windsor. I love that place. Great, great lasagna. <laughs> and they're BYOB, so they're cheap. All right, let's move on. Okay. We can't forget our listeners, especially since this is one of our regular listeners. So, moving on to our questions. Our first one comes from Bernie McCann in Elwood City, Pennsylvania. And Bernie says, You mentioned Sweden and their relaxed approach to dealing with the coronavirus. Contrary to your statement that the country is handling it well without enforcing social distancing or going under lockdown, there have been rumblings in the medical community there. There's no shortage of calls for stricter measures for the government to step in Mm -hmm. because Sweden's infection and death rate are actually higher than in the surrounding countries. You had referenced Forbes as the source of your info about Sweden. But the latest from Forbes suggests that the infection is out of control there. Yeah. Well, welcome back, Bernie. As I said, you're getting to be a real regular here. You know, we should get him on the air, Bernie, sometime. Yeah. That'd be great to have him just do his own questions. But anyway, for those of you who may have missed it, Bernie is replying to my response, his response to my statement about how Sweden contrary to virtually the entire planet, they did not shut down their economy in response to the pandemic. They just went ahead and kept everything open and lived life as it should be lived. Very, very libertarian, if you ask me. That Forbes article he mentions that started the conversation was about how the Swedes have the lowest level of fear about the pandemic of all of Europe. And it also pointed out how the Swedes, how well the Swedes fared against their sister European countries when it came to the pandemic-related deaths. Now, i got to pause there because we have to define some terms, and i got to rant a little bit about the media and their pandemic reporting because virtually every media outlet is getting it wrong, flat-out wrong. That's because all they do is report the raw number of deaths. Oh, no, they will. Ten more deaths today. Well, of course more people died today. They're going to die every day. It's a pandemic, right? What else would you expect? problem with their reporting is this has no context. When they say 10 people died, the first question that I would ask is 10 out of how many? Uh, 10 out of 100? Out of 1,000? Out of, out of a million? A billion? Without knowing that denominator, you have no way of understanding the impact of that 10 number. Now that leads to the next problem because when they start talking about death rates, they'll say, oh, they're, they'll say 10 death rates, 10 deaths out of all reported cases. And then in the next breath, they'll say how large number of people, they have the virus, but no symptoms. In other words, they don't know how many people have it. That means they flat out admit that their death rate is incorrect on the face of it. Yet they go right on reporting it. Why? Why? Well, I have an opinion about that. I think they want to make things look worse so they can sell more newspapers and banner ads. They're trying to get click-throughs. It's shameless sensationalism, if you ask me. It is true fake news. It has no basis in reality other than 10. 
They take away all the objective context to make it look as bad as possible. So what do we do instead? How do we measure those deadly effects? Well, the Forbes article that I cited had a clear-cut way of measuring the death rates that's a lot more accurate, and it's based on real numbers that are not subject to shameless sensationalism. They used per capita deaths, specifically how many people per million of population have died. See, now that's a number you know. It's factual. It's easy to measure. There's no doubt. And since a per capita approach gives us a true death rate, let me give it a name. Let me call it capital T, true death rate, true death rate. Sweden currently, I just looked, it's 119 people have died out of every million people. Now, if you do the math, that true death rate is one hundredth of one percent. Or if you want to make it consistent, one percent of one percent of the population, which is a very small number. Smaller than the typical flu season, by the way. All right. So I have to find my terms. We got capital T true death rate. All right. Let's go back to Bernie and his Forbes article. I read that one. And the one he cites has absolutely no numbers in it. It repeatedly uses that same sensationalist, incorrect, quote-unquote, death rate based on some admittedly unknown denominator. In other words, Bernie, what you're reading is fake news. Let's call it sensationalist death rate, capital S, sensationalist death rate. So rather than the Forbes fake news, let's go instead to the facts. I go to a raw numbers. I always start with the raw numbers. My degree's in physics, and it always shows. There's a website. I'm not sure how to pronounce this. It's worldometer or worldometer.info, worldometer. And it has all the numbers to accurately compare one country against another using per capita death rates. And when I first mentioned the capital T truth, true death rates back in episode 53, out of the nine European countries that were surveyed, Sweden was smack dab in the middle of the pack, fifth out of nine. That was a month ago. Today I went and looked at those same nine countries, and guess what? Sweden is still smack dab in the middle, fifth out of nine. And their per capita death rate is declining, Bernie. The bottom line is that Sweden's approach is no better or no worse than the rest of Europe. They're not at the top of the heap with the highest true death rate. They're not at the bottom with the lowest true death rate. You know what that means? It means there is no reason at all to shut down the economies of the planet. No reason at all to throw millions out of work. No reason at all for the global kabuki dance. None at all. More important than solving the problem correctly is to solve the correct problem. I've been saying all along how Governor Wolf and virtually the entire planet has been taking the wrong approach by solving the wrong problem. I've said it in every episode starting at episode 50, and here we are still talking about it in the sixth episode afterwards, and the facts continue to bear me out. I've said a lot about the pandemic in those six episodes, how we should have proceeded if we were solving the correct problem, and looking at it today, I would not change a word of it. There's no need to, unless you want more fake news. Am I off the rails here, Donna? No, actually. I was talking to my brother about the same thing. I said, you can't do statistics like they're doing because you don't know how many people actually have it. Some of the things that you actually That's said. Right. So, yeah. Fake news. I, I like your per capita thing. I never yeah. thought about it like that. My heart goes out to the victims. Oh, absolutely. But, uh, something else goes out to the media. <laughs> and to our governor and to your governor and all these other governors outside of Sweden. We're solving the wrong problem. Mm. 
on that non-sensationalist note, that's going to have to do it for the U portion of episode 55. We're going to pause for this information, and when we return, we'll be meeting with today's guest, past school board president, Kathy Smith. Did you hear the latest news? Almost two-thirds of all federal spending now goes to pay for the welfare state. More than $2.2 trillion, which just about equals federal income. Do you realize what that means? Virtually all tax revenue is now being consumed by the welfare state. But how do we rein in that runaway spending before it destroys America? The answer? The separation of society and state. That's the premise of the new novel, Atlas Snubbed, an unsanctioned parody sequel to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Snubbed presents a workable alternative to the welfare state as we know it. Atlas Snubbed expertly extends Rand's epic story of a looter's world snubbed by the men of the mind, bringing to life a crumbling post-apocalyptic world where no one need ask who is John Galt, because now they know. Atlas Snubbed, available at all online bookstores or through atlassnubbed.com. Read it today before it's too late. Here's an interesting question. What do you think of these three ideas? Number one, people have at all times an inalienable right to alter, reform, or abolish their government as they think proper. Number two, juries shall have the right to determine the law as well as the facts. Number three, the right of the citizens to bear arms in defense of themselves and the state shall not be questioned. Do those words sound like there's something taken from a Hollywood political thriller? They are not. They're all direct quotes from Article 1 of the Pennsylvania Constitution. Everyone's heard of the United States Constitution, but have you ever heard of the Pennsylvania Constitution? Have you ever read it? But most importantly, was it ever taught to you in school? If you're like virtually all Pennsylvanians, the answer, the answers are likely to be no, no, and no. Well, it's long past time we changed those answers to yes, yes, and yes. And are you and you have a crucial part to play in making that come to pass. As you know, we here at the Pennsylvania Project are all about solutions. So we've authored a petition demanding that the Pennsylvania Constitution be taught to our children. If you believe it's important for our children to know how our state government works, head over to our website pennsylvaniaproject.com and add your name to the growing list of signers. And every time we accumulate another batch of signatures, we'll send a copy of the petition to the governor, the Pennsylvania Board of Education, and each and every one of the 501 school districts in Pennsylvania, asking them right now to start teaching our children the Pennsylvania Constitution. So please, Sign the petition at PennsylvaniaProject.com. The alternative is yet another generation that has never heard of, let alone read, the Pennsylvania Constitution. And people wonder why no one votes anymore. 
true. You know, that commercial still moves me. I've heard it so many times. Hey, Ken Crotchuk here, and welcome to the Them portion of episode 55 of the Pennsylvania Project, where we host a guest to help showcase the political, cultural, and or environmental issues facing contemporary Pennsylvania. Today's guest is a mix of the political and the cultural. She's Kathy Smith, two-term member of the Cannon McMillan School Board just south of Pittsburgh, and one of those terms, she served as school board president. She comes from a family of educators and has a degree in special education. Before she retired, she also worked for over two decades at a local Borders bookstore. And one thing I really like about Kathy is that she served as the Libertarian Party candidate for Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor in 2018. She was my wonderful running mate, and she's not even a Toastmaster? Anyway, Kathy, welcome to the Pennsylvania Project. Thanks, Ken. And that uh, last commercial was a perfect lead-in. Yeah. Because Pennsylvania was one of the first states to have public education. That's right. Yeah. And the, the reasoning at the time was to have a perf- an informed electorate and to prepare students for the labor market. Now, an informed electorate would require civics education, yes. which no longer exists in our schools. And preparing for a wage labor market would require vocational education which is also disappearing from our schools. Uh-huh. So but, the two reasons that we formed public schools in Pennsylvania have been lost. Wow. Boy, I get to, <laughs> we certainly got the right person on here. And I have it right here in front of me. It's Article 3, Section 14. The General Assembly shall provide for the maintenance and support of a thorough and efficient system of public education to serve the needs of the Commonwealth. Very, very true. Now, Kathy, I, I got to ask, and I, well, I was listening to the, our commercial about our petition. What good is it going to do? You're, you're president of the school board there. Suppose it, wind up, it winds up on your desk. You hear from this guy, this crazy guy in southeastern Pennsylvania, some libertarian guy, Ken something or other, can't even pronounce his last name. And he, and he sends you this petition saying, start teaching our kids the Pennsylvania Constitution. And he's got all these examples of words being violated left and right. What would, be, what would be your reaction? Um, the school boards actually have very little control over what is taught in the schools. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's, it's surprising. People expect that the school boards have a lot more power in individual schools than they really do. One thing that you can do if you can get a majority of your school board to go along with it, is that you can affect the hiring process. And it starts with your superintendent, and then he's got to help you find good administrators in the buildings, and then they have to set standards for the kinds of teachers that they're looking for. Now, I'm very lucky living in this district. We actually have a social studies department in our high school that does deal with civics. It's a little late. They're doing it when they're juniors and seniors in high school. It would be better if it started in the lower grades that they started to learn the story (laughs) of the American experiment. But um, at least it's something. What about the Pennsylvania experiment? Why shouldn't we teach three-year-olds or third graders that they have the right to bear arms? 
I don't have any problem with that. <laughs> Don's I'm out here in the western part of the state where many of our students already know that because their fathers and their uncles and their mothers and their sisters uh-huh. may be hunters or at least gun owners. And, you know, I was, I was raised, oh. I was, yeah, actually, Kathy, I had a question because one of the comments that you made was that uh, you have very little control over what's taught. Uh, is that because of the particular district that you're in and that you have to adhere to a certain set of state standards in order to um, be able to get, like, funding, state funding? And then, of course, there's always the federal portion of that that comes into play, too, right? And so you have to have a certain curriculum, perhaps? Right. Um, started. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, yeah. I just, you know, I was always under the impression that the school board is is a body that sort of oversees and manages yeah. the whole, mm. the, the entire public school district's affairs, you know, that, that was including true. hiring, the, you know, that teachers and so on. Probably until the mid-60s or mid-70s. Um, my original education heroes were Daniel Patrick Moynihan uh, the senator from New York, mm-hmm. and John Holt, who wrote How Children Learn and uh, a book called Unschooling. But by the time the 70s came along, there were already a lot of benchmarks being put in place, usually state by state. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was ready to enter the career, a lot of the teachers that I really admired were leaving because they felt they were losing their autonomy. Now, 20 years later, in the mid-90s, you had the Federal Department of Education, which was mandating to the states what they should mandate to the school districts. And if your state does not meet the um, annual progress reports, you may lose federal funding. Mm -hmm. And if your district doesn't meet the standardized testing results that are expected, you'll lose state funding. So, yes. The money gets driven by mandates from either Harrisburg or Washington, D.C. So things like the Common Core come into play, perhaps? Yep. The latest yep. fad. Yeah, no child that. left behind, I think. Was and, the, and the one before <laughs> that was outcomes-based <laughs> education. Yep. And the one before that was new math. We know what Tom well, Lehrer said about it, new it's math. It's been about 10 years, so I'm thinking that there's probably a new standard coming oh, along. Oh, no. Kathy, please. I'd hate to see it because you, every every decade, it seems that we lose two or three years making a shift. Um, it, it's really disruptive, I think, to the educational process. I believe it. You know, you mentioned that book by John Holt, Unschooling. I saw a bump. Mm-hmm. I saw a bumper sticker not too long ago, and it stuck in my mind. It said, "My unschooled child will hire your honor student." <laughs> That's very likely true. Can you give us a, one sentence of what unschooling is? Two sentences? Unschooling is a process where you develop curiosity and learning skills in a child. You follow their lead and give them the resources that they need to learn how to learn. That almost sounds like a Montessori type of school. It can be. Um, Montessori had a, a really good um, exper- experiential learning process. Right. But like anything else, it can get caught up in its own regime. Hmm. Some children don't do well in Montessori 
some children learn differently. Sure. So I think parents need to really <clears throat> look at their own child and what, what turns them on, what excites them about the world. Well, I'll have to tell you in full disclosure, um, I actually taught high school for about five years while I was working really? through my master's. Yes. I've known you for a while. I didn't know that. <laughs> my undergraduate degree is mathematics and a uh, minor in computer science, and then I've got my master's in computer science. So wow. well, I taught uh, high school math and computer science. And so... Um, and another full disclosure here is both of my parents, when I was a kid, were on our respective board of education. In fact, my mother was the very first woman who was ever on our town's board of ed. Congratulations to her. Oh, and wow. Congratulations. Yeah, that was like That's a long terrific. time ago. <laughs> That's terrific. Uh, it's, yeah. it's very interesting. I imagine in her era that most of the teachers, at least in the elementary schools, were women. But all of the board members were men. Oh, you're not kidding. In fact, she has a funny story. And I'll, I'll tell you, my, my, my mom's going to be 95 uh, in June. So just to give you a sense of her. her uh, my dad's going to be 100 in July, by the way. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank God they've been safe. But uh, she used to tell a story about the first time she walked into the, uh, the board of ed uh, room for the first meeting. And, yes, you're right, Kathy, all the men were there. And uh, they, you know, they had their thing where they're like, rah, 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 and they were cursing and all that kind of stuff, you know. And my mom walks in the room. She said the entire thing went quiet. They all just <laughs> shut up and they just turned and looked at her. And my mom, who's who's she's a fantastic woman, she has this thing where she she said she just stood there. She put her hands on her hips and she said, "At ease, men." <laughs> <laughs> I love it, Kathy. What's what's your uh, are, are the only representative of your gender on the school board there, or is it, how's it, how mixed is it? No, it has been, um, I would say there have usually been maybe three women on the board at most. Um, it, it's still fairly heavily male-dominated. Uh -huh. When you go to a state school board convention, women are definitely in the minority. <laughs> yeah. Interesting to hear. And I'll bet you that a lot of your... Um, your your uh, supervisors are also kind of uh, male dominated. We should, we should do that. <laughs> we should do that topic on a future one. We're going to talk about. That. Yeah, we can yeah. we can do that at another time because a lot of professions are uh, are in that same male dominated. I meant to say superintendent, by the way, not supervisors. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm your caster, Ken Krawchuk, and you're listening to episode 55 of the Pennsylvania Project with our guest Kathy Smith. We'll be right back after this information. Do you like the Pennsylvania Project? Well, you must. After all, you're listening to it right now. But would you like more? More of the rants, the guests, the fun. Well, you're in luck. Because by popular demand, we've added even more content. Things like keeping the mics live after the credits roll at the end of the show while we continue our on-air conversations. It's all 100% unscripted and often includes things we can't say on the air or shouldn't. Would you like access to each episode the day it's recorded? Live streams of every show as it happens? Behind-the-scenes interviews and bonus videos with our guests? All this is now available at thepennsylvaniaproject.com. But wait, there's more! Sign up today, and you also get a copy of Ken's novel, Atlas Snubbed, a parody sequel 
to Alan Rand's Atlas Shrugged. And you can even call in live and participate <coughs> on the show. How's that for more content? You can be the content. So, if the idea of more Pennsylvania Project excites you, head on over to PennsylvaniaProject.com and click the More Fun link at the top of the page. Solve the correct problem correctly and sign up today. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here, caster of the Pennsylvania Project. You know, it's easy to find a high-paying job. At least for some people it is. Employers are begging for competent leaders who know how to communicate effectively. But do those words describe you? Competent leader communicates effectively? If not, or even if they do, you may want to consider joining Toastmasters. The mission of Toastmasters is to provide a supportive environment for learning communication and leadership skills. But does it really work? Hey, look at me. I joined Toastmasters, and now I have my own radio show. So turn your life around like I have. Visit Toastmasters.org and contact a club near you. Visitors are always welcome, and be sure to mention my name. The future is anxiously awaiting competent leaders who know how to communicate effectively. You can be that leader. It all starts at Toastmasters.org. Are you a small business owner always looking for referrals? Do you have a streamlined approach to generating new referrals? Contact Stephen Worley to learn the fast, easy way to generate new referrals. Stephen has an all-inclusive system that will help you generate an extra 5 to 10 customers per week without spending a single dollar on ads. You won't have to create a website, have pictures taken, or write a single ad. Stephen will take the headache out of the process. Contact him at stephenwerley.com. That's Stephen with a V, W-E-R-L-E-Y dot com. Fly fishermen, new and old, understand the importance of affordable quality gear. At Christopher Fave Fly Fishing, we have provided for over a quarter of a century. Whether you fish dries, wets, or any combination, Christopher Fave, F-A-V-E, flyfishing.com has an American-made leader for you. Pennsylvania proud, our reputation rests solely on your complete satisfaction. Again, that's Christopher Fave, flyfishing.com. Hey, Ken Karachuk here again, and we're back with episode 55 of the Pennsylvania Project. And Kathy Smith, our guest, past school board president of the Cannon McMillan School Board just south of Pittsburgh. You're still with us, Kathy. I'm still with you. I'm still waiting for our first guest to walk out during that first break. I guess I've been too easy on you. So <laughs> <laughs> I got used to you during the campaign. That's true. <laughs> you know, I, I would like to talk about that for a bit. But before we do, I have to ask a question. Does Ken McMillan teach the Pennsylvania Constitution? Probably not. Probably not. Now, nobody got taught the Pennsylvania Constitution. Did you go to school in Pennsylvania? Back when you were a child. I did not. I spent my high school years in uh, upstate New York. Did you learn the and New York State Constitution? We did learn some of it. Wow. It was um, It was in junior high school. 
so it was not very detailed, but we at least saw it. Uh, we knew we had one. <laughs> I didn't know we had one until I was in my 30s. I was in my mid-30s, and I was going through the encyclopedia. I have an encyclopedia Britannica, which I loved before the days of the Internet. And I was reading through it, and it's like, what? What do you mean every state's got one? And that just <laughs> sent me off on a on a quest which led to you and I being running mates for governor of Pennsylvania last year, I mean, lieutenant governor. Kathy, what, what led you to do that? Good grief. I mean, we, we do have self-government here, and that does mean you have to do it yourself, but <laughs> what, what prompted you to, to, to say yes? What prompted me to say yes? Well, I was, um, I was intrigued by the process. And I actually thought that you and I would make a good team. Uh, I agree. And we did. If you remember, you, you came out to Western Pennsylvania, and um, you had a Q&A with a lot of libertarians. And I was really impressed by your passion and your knowledge of the state government and operations. And I thought that with you having that side of the uh, platform, so to speak, and my experience with education and local government between the two of us, had we been elected, we could probably have done some tremendous things. I agree completely. And I, and I got to say how impressed I was with you because of your knowledge, just the, the questions that you posed and everything. It was real funny because my campaign manager and I, you know, we got in the car afterwards and we're like, we got to get that lady. We got to get that lady. You know. And, and, and by the way, do you have plans for 2022? Because <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be running for governor. We need somebody who's been around the block, somebody who knows education, somebody who knows the, the ropes. I'm, uh, I'm, huh? I'm not going to put you on the spot here. <laughs> all right, all right. I will tuck that away in the back corner of my mind. There you go. <laughs> all right. Let's. I'll I was wondering if I could uh, ask Kathy a question. No, because no, you're not allowed to ask her anything. You're, you're just supposed to sit there. Quiet. <laughs> I'm just supposed to sit there and look pretty right now. Okay. Yeah. And you do a good job of that. Oh, if well, I thank can say you. So, so um, actually, Kathy, uh, I mean, I can't help but uh, wonder with everything going on and everybody staying home, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure, and I happen to know because I did I did look up your your school district that you are doing online schooling now. You have moved to that. And I was just wondering what type of challenges that you might have been facing given that. I have some friends who are, are teachers and things like that, and some of them uh, were basically saying there was a bit of a scramble uh, in their, their school districts to try and pull this off. So I was wondering how, how you um, and your teachers came uh, basically hit that challenge. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is a struggle. Um, I think we're pretty well situated. Most of the families in our district have fairly decent internet access, and um, there are computers available uh, through the school district. So that helps. I'm not exactly sure how much real work is getting done, um, enough, I suppose, to get through the coursework. I'm more concerned about places like Greene County and the areas in the mid-central mountain ranges of Pennsylvania and the northern tier 
where internet access is really pretty spotty. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't. I have heard of some districts who are using their bus drivers to carry folders to each bus bus stop Clever. every day, mm-hmm. and then pick up the previous days. That's and I, I just can't imagine how that's working. Yeah. That's what I was wondering how, how you I know I know you're only well, less than a half hour from um, Pittsburgh, but uh, you never know with the mountains and so on out there. It's mm-hmm. beautiful country. Oh, I, I know. I just love it. The rolling mountains that they have down there, it's unlike anything we have out yeah. here. My, my sister lived in uh, Swickley, which is uh, just outside of Pittsburgh for yeah, uh, several years. Yeah, about yeah. the mm-hmm. my, my, my brother-in-law is actually from Pittsburgh, which is <laughs> – mm-hmm. so I've, I've been out there, and it's, it is uh, some lovely – I, I, I'm hearing a lot of questions from juniors and seniors in high school <clears throat> who are wondering what credits they're going to have and how colleges are going to accept them or judge them. And um, I can only hope that colleges remember that these kids have had a very, very disrupted education and take that into account as they are accepting students. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would hope so too. Now, Kathy, we're believe it or not, we're starting to run a little bit low on time. We still have some time left. I wonder if there's something that we haven't raised yet that you want to make sure we get in. Well, I want to make sure that parents understand that they can be teachers. Oh yeah. I know a lot of parents are intimidated by the school system, but parents should do whatever they can to spark curiosity in their children. Mm-hmm. They don't have to know the answers to the children's questions. There are libraries for that, computers for that. And actually, you may be able to find local experts. A lot of them like to talk to children about their fields. Uh-huh. So when your child asks a question, your answer can be, what do you think? Or where should we look to find out? Parents are the child's best advocate for learning. And I think that's a message that the you know, governmentized school systems have kind of pushed aside. They feel that they're the experts and that parents really should just stand back and let them teach the way they want to teach. Mm -hmm. You know, we had uh, gifted children, which is really a nice thing to have. But Pennsylvania treats gifted children under their special education program. And I know I mentioned in your bio that you have a special education degree. Yes. Um, now, that's an opportunity for parents really to step forward because the gifted program, we, are, we were actually able to craft what our kids were learning. I've, I have found that gifted programs are really, in most districts, just set up to meet the legal standard. Oh, it's so um, sad. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of kids... That I, that I know, I know some families um, who have children in gifted programs in elementary and middle schools. Mm-hmm. And instead of actually having teachers who are devoted to educating gifted students, the way we have teachers who are devoted to autistic children or deaf children or blind children, right. they get pulled out of their normal class and assigned more work. More work is not the same as 
advanced work. I agree completely. I, I have to tell you, I am a victim of some wishy-washy when it comes to this kind of stuff. Between 7th and 8th grade in my junior high years, in 7th grade, all of the classes were grouped homogeneously. And so uh, and it was by, you know, gifted versus needing more help. And, and between 7th and 8th grade, they changed their mind. They decided, no, it has to be heterogeneous. Yeah. So I was in, it, it was like 7-1 to 7-6, right? And I was in the 7-1s. And so what they did was they took us and they sprinkled us everywhere. And, you know, in 7th grade, we finished not only the 7th grade math book, but also the 8th grade math book. So when they mm-hmm. changed everything in 8th grade, I was redoing the 8th grade math book. And they stuck us in the back in the room and handed us a 9th grade algebra book and was trying to make us learn that way. So, Kathy, it sounds like that's kind of what some of the gifted programs, quote-unquote, are doing, just stick them in the back right. of the room. Mm-hmm. And in high school, they just say, well, we have AP classes. Mm. That, that's the gifted program, yeah. AP class. No, it's not. It, children, children who are very bright ask questions that teachers <laughs> in a answer. heterogeneous classroom can't take the time to answer uh-huh. and might not know uh-huh. the answer. You know, one of, one of the things I learned which is most instructive about the gifted program, because the parents got educated on this, too. They had seminars and stuff. They said that a child may be gifted, but only gifted in one area. And I don't know, right. how, I don't know how many times I heard people tell me, you're supposed to be so smart. Why can't you remember to do X? You know? Right. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm reminded my, my brother-in-law has a coffee mug, and it's got a Far Side comic on it. And there's a kid pushing on a door. It says, school for the gifted, but it says pull. It's <laughs> one of my favorite Farside cartoons. Uh, Kathy, we are out of time. Do you have any, anything you want to throw in there at the last minute? Any website you want to send somebody to or anything? No, I, I would encourage parents, even in the darkest of times and quarantines and whatever, get your children outside in nature. Agreed. Let them explore the world. It's their first and best science lesson. Agreed. Lesson. Last weekend we had our kids out on the Appalachian Trail, for, grandkids out on the Appalachian Trail for the weekend. Yeah, absolutely great. I think parents can teach things that the teachers can't teach. And versa vice, especially when my <laughs> granddaughter comes back, she says, I found a, ske- a skeleton, and it was a <laughs> raccoon. She took the, sc- oh, the cool. raccoon skull home, yeah. Terrific. Yep. Well, thanks for being on board, Kathy. And that's going to have to wrap it up for the then portion of the show. Thank pa- you. I've enjoyed I've enjoyed talking to both of you and to your listeners. Likewise. Thanks, Kathy. We're going to pause for this information, and when we return, I'm going to be ranting about something that really sticks in my craw, my Catholic education. The following is a commercial announcement. Hey, Donna, how's it going? Bad, Ken. Really bad. Why? What's the matter? Our friends at the Infernal Revenue Service paid me a visit, a personal visit, the other day. The Infernal Revenue Service? Yep. Call them for what they are. They sent these two big brutes to the house and scared us all half to death. I bet. What did they want? Money. Lots of it. Remember that part-time gig I took on last summer? Oh, yeah. You were raking in some big bucks. (laughs) Yeah, and all those big bucks went into my personal bank account. Well, turns out the IRS doesn't like that. And I didn't file any of the right forms or pay nearly enough in taxes, so they want it all. Now. Right now. Plus, penalties and interest. Ouch. 
Sounds like you should have called Amendment 16. Hey, it's the damn 16th Amendment that got me into this predicament in the first place. No, no, no. Amendment 16, the invoicing service. They'll invoice your client for the hours and expenses you report to them, and when your client pays them, they pay you, minus all required state and federal taxes. It's that easy. One call does it all. And they'll even have an accountant do your personal taxes for you come April Fool's Day. I mean, come April 15th. (laughs) And they take care of all the forms? All the taxes? Yep, and they get passed along certain tax breaks, too. Man, I wish I knew about Amendment 16 sooner. Where can I find them? On the web, of course, at amendment16.com, with 16 spelled out. That's amendment, S-I-X-T-E-E-N.com. One call does it all. Gun Owners of America is fighting for your right to keep and bear arms in Pennsylvania and across the nation. GOA's no-compromise approach protected the firearms industry during the coronavirus pandemic and kept local gun stores open. In Pennsylvania, our members pressured sheriffs to start issuing concealed carry permits again during the crisis. A GOA membership gives you the tools to take action to fight for your Second Amendment rights. Our timely action alerts empower you to defend your constitutionally protected rights in Harrisburg and in Washington. All Pennsylvania gun owners need to band together, and there is no better way of doing that than with a GOA membership. There hasn't been a more critical time to sign up, folks. Not only is there a presidential election year coming, but Congress and the entire State House of Representatives are up for election, re-election. So, join GOA today for only $25. Go to gunowners.org slash join. That's gunowners.org slash join. And become a member for only $25. Once more, that's gunowners.org slash join. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here, and welcome to the me portion of episode 55 of the Pennsylvania Project, where I get to rant a bit about something that really sticks in my craw. Today, it's my Catholic education. Yep, I went to Catholic school. First my local parish school until eighth grade, then four years at the world's largest Catholic high school, by the way. Then four years at a Jesuit college, which I hated, to a degree. There's a lot I can say about my Catholic education, but I'll skip the college part because I already ranted about college in general back in episode 52. So let's start with grade school and then move on. I went to St. Ambrose School, C Street and Roosevelt Boulevard in the Alney section of Philadelphia. And most of the time, my teachers were nuns, St. Joe nuns to be precise. Now, can you imagine how terrifying that was on my first day of school? The only reference I had to a tall, angry black woman dressed all in black was the Wicked Witch of the West. (laughs) Not to mention being crowded in a room with munchkins. My first grade class had 74 kids in it. It drifted down over the years about 50 by the time I got to eighth grade, but it was crowded. And you know, despite having to herd so many kids, it was pretty easy for the nuns to keep us all in line. That's because the nuns have God on their side. You should hear some of the fables the nuns would tell us. Like... If you raise the hand, God's going to freeze it there. And you'd walk around the rest of your life with your hand in the air. And if you made a face behind her back, your face would freeze that way. 
You know, that might be true because I know a lot of unattractive people. <laughs> but, of course, we studied the Catholic religion every day. First subject of the day, in fact, every day. We had this book called the Baltimore Catechism. And each chapter had, I don't know, a dozen questions that we were required to memorize word for word. And heaven forbid if you didn't. Yeah, literally heaven forbid. Because one thing the Catholic schools were big on was corporal punishment. If you got it wrong or weren't paying attention, those nuns would repeatedly break rulers and pointers over your knuckles until you knuckled under. And I still have some scars. And of course, torture got worse when we got to high school. The nuns got replaced by priests, big burly priests. I had one priest who had a two-by-four he'd bring to class. He called it his implement. And if you were bad, you'd get what he called an implementation. And you had to ask, may I please have the implement, Father? And then you put your nose on the edge of your teacher's desk, and he'd whack your butt with a two-by-four. Truth. Absolute truth. But there was one implementation I never got, fortunately, because the priest who taught my ninth-grade English class... He made the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer a few years ago as one of those pedophile priests. <laughs> you wouldn't want to bend over a desk when he was around, that's for sure. I can go on and on about those silly rules and all the statistic torture they put us through. But it wasn't until I was almost out of school before it dawned on me the rationale for it all. Because you see, in my opinion, there are three kinds of kids that come out of the Catholic school system. First, with the vast majority of the kids who knuckled under the rules and did what they were told the sheep. Second kind were the bad kids who refused to follow the rules and got themselves kicked out. Kids like my producer Mark, <laughs> no names. But the third kind to come out of Catholic schools were the small minority who refused to follow the rules, but the, rather than figure a way to kick that kicked out, they figured out a way to get around the rules. It's my opinion that the purpose of the Catholic school system is to produce that third kind of student. You know, looking at the broader picture, Back in episode 52, I did a dramatic reading of some song lyrics that summed up better than I ever could what's wrong with education in general. The lyrics were written by the late Bob Blue and sung to the tune of Frank Sinatra's My Way, except Bob's version is titled My Way. Back then I said I wish we had Donna on hand to sing because she has such a lovely voice. So given we're talking about education and given that she's here today, I would be remiss in my duties if I didn't jump at the opportunity. So ladies and gentlemen, for the rest of our time, I give you Donna Herb singing Their Way by the late Bobby Blue. I came, bought all my books, lived in a dorm, followed directions. I worked, I studied hard, met lots of folks who had connections. I crammed, they gave me grades, though may I say, not in a fair way, but more, much more than this, I did it their way. I memorized all sorts of things, although I know I'll never use them. The courses that I took were all required. I didn't choose them. I found that to survive, I had to act the doctrinaire way. And so I buckled down. 
I did it their way. But there were times I wondered why I had to walk when I could fly. I had my doubts, but after all, I clipped my wings. I learned to crawl. I learned to bend, and in the end, I did it their way. So, my fine young friend, now that I am a full professor, where once I was oppressed, I've now become the cruel oppressor. With me, you've learned to cope. You'll learn to climb life's golden stairway. Like me, you'll see the light. You'll do it their way. What can I say? What can I do? Take out your book. Read chapter two. F, if you do, it seems routine. Don't speak to me. Go see the dean. As long as they give me my pay, I'll do it their way. Beautiful, Donna. On that note... On that sequence of notes, I should say, that's going to have to wrap it up for episode 55 of the Pennsylvania Project. If you have something to say, we'd love to hear from you. Contact us at PennsylvaniaProject.com. Today's episode is courtesy of Amendment 16 Limited, recorded live at the studios of WWDB Radio. Webmaster Stephen Worley, marketing guru Connor Dragotis, official bartender Brooke Smith, featured Toastmaster narrator, cohort, and vocalist Donna Herb. Radio producer Brett Kronberger, executive producer Mark Bazzacco, and me, your caster, Ken Krawchuk. Thanks for joining us. And remember, more important than solving the problem correctly is to solve the correct problem.